It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I hope you're all doing well. We're doing great. In case you didn't hear, we recently beat off Stiff International Competition to win an award, the best use of audio in the Global Media Awards, no less, for our big nights in. So thanks to all of you who came along to our big nights in over the last mad over a year or so and we actually think it's your award too so there you go and speaking of awards I wanted to start off today's podcast by congratulating Dr Tony Holohan the Chief Medical Officer on being presented with the Freedom of Dublin City this week which is an honour he accepted on behalf of all frontline workers which was very good of him because of course an awful lot of those frontline workers are women and women in very lowly paid jobs, actually. But unfortunately, when it comes to past recipients of the Freedom of the City of Dublin, we can't say the same thing. In fact, of the 83 people who have been awarded this very high honour, only five of them have been women. Five. So if you put it in percentage terms, and I did have to do this on Google, just 6% of the people who have the freedom of our capital city are women. It's not a good look. The first ever woman to get the award was suffragette Margaret Sandhurst. And that's all the way back in 1889. And then you have to go all the way nearly 100 years later before another woman gets the freedom of the city in 1984. And that was given to amazing theatre performer Maureen Potter. Then the following year, 1985, Crown Princess Michiko of Japan, the Empress, got it. And in 1993, Mother Teresa got the award. In 1999, Aung San Suu Kyi got the award, but um, she was stripped of it in 2017. And then in 2017, Michelle Obama is the last woman to have got the freedom of Dublin City. So to recap, since Isaac Butt got the very first Freedom of the City Award in 1876, that's nearly 150 years ago, there have been five awards to women, only four of which are still on the roll of honour. Uh, I don't know what to say, really. I think it's disgraceful. I think it's shameful. I can think of hundreds of women who deserve the keys of our city. And names that came up when I highlighted this on Twitter this week included Catherine Corliss, Sinead O'Connor, Vicky Phelan. I'd be here all day telling you the amount of amazing women who deserve the freedom of Dublin City. So maybe it's something we can write to Dublin City Council about. Um, Hazel Chu, uh, there hasn't been many female Lord Mayors. She's in there and she's very active. So it might be something she could get concerned about too. I don't think it's something we should accept anymore. It should not be an award that you have far greater chance of winning if you are a man. It is just not right. Okay, rant over. Later on in the podcast, we're going to hear from midwife Leslie Gilchrist, who has appeared on the Channel 4 show One Born every minute and she is the founder of the My Expert Midwife brand. To coincide with its official launch in Ireland, the brand recently conducted research with Baby Doc and found over a thousand women in Ireland who recently gave birth and got them to reveal just how much Irish women think about the post-birth recovery stage of motherhood, a topic that is rarely focused on. In this interview, she talks about the importance of new mothers being facilitated by partners, friends, family in taking time for self-care in recovery. And I think as a society, we need to take a long, hard look at the expectations we put on women, particularly when it comes to recovery after birth. We also look at how the pandemic has obliterated new mothers' support networks. And Gilchrist thinks history will view women who've given birth during COVID as heroic in the same vein as those who gave birth during war. But first, before we hear from her, We're going to talk about shyness. Um, It's often characterised as a character flaw, but a new book by Annie Ridout simply called Shy. She wants to talk about this and kind of recast shyness and show people how to embrace 
what is a very misjudged attribute instead of trying to fix it. Now, most of us have some understanding of shyness from birthday parties as children to office Christmas parties as adults, from old friends' weddings to a group presentation. We've all experienced it in some form or another. Shyness may be ever present or it may come and go and it could be partly genetic, partly environmental. But shyness is largely viewed, as I said, as a character flaw and something that needs to change. But what Ridout says is why is no one talking about the benefits of being shy? For example, shyness usually equates to being an excellent listener, considerate speaker and thoughtful observer. Interweaving personal experience with expertise from clinical psychologists, Annie explores in the book why shyness affects some people more than others and she gives tools to help people deal with it. So we also dragged in our co-producer Suzanne Brennan, who identifies as a shy person to talk about how she has managed her shyness since childhood and whether indeed it is a gift or a curse. But I began by asking Annie Ridout to explain why she wrote this book in the first place. Good question. So I originally wanted to write a book about confidence. I work with a lot of women and confidence is often an issue. And as I started exploring my own journey with confidence, my shyness kept coming up. The fact that I was really shy as a child and that I'm sometimes shy now. And it felt more important to explore shyness than it did confidence. Um, So, and I think maybe more interesting, and I think there were already um, some really good books on confidence out there, um, but there isn't a book that looks at shyness and says that shyness is okay. There are only books that say shyness is something that you need to work through and that you need to overcome. So I wanted to change the conversation. Well, you do that really well with the book. So let's go back to your own um, childhood then. Sorry to put you on the psychiatrist's chair a bit. But (laughs) what were your first memories of um, being kind of overcome or crippled, as they say, with shyness? I think because my parents were very accepting of my shyness, um, I was lucky. It didn't feel as big to me as perhaps it did to other people at home. I definitely felt aware that if my parents had friends around, they'd sort of lean down to talk to me and I'd want to just um, go and hide behind my mum. But it was at school that um, I think the teachers felt that if they forced me to speak out in class, if they forced me to sing in assembly, that somehow I would stop being shy. And of course, it didn't stop me from being shy. It just made me really nervous and made me not like school very much. So I think at home I was very comfortable with my shyness because I was told it just wasn't even a conversation. Perhaps like perhaps in retrospect, it would have been helpful if it had been a conversation in terms of it not being a sort of a secret or like a hidden thing. But my parents kind of encouraged me to go out and explore and make friends and, you know, sent me off to clubs and groups and whatever else. Um, But if I ever felt uncomfortable, then they would let me leave and and go back to my safe space which was at home with them so I don't know that I really gave it a huge amount of thought as a child but it's as I've got older and I've looked back and I thought oh actually it was yeah there were definitely things that I struggled with because I didn't realize that it was okay to be quiet that wasn't the message I was hearing the message was you need to be loud you need to be confident to speak out in class if you want to make friends you have to be funny And there were sort of all these messages that I now realise it's just, it's not true. There's there's so much uh, beauty in shyness and in quiet children. um, And it can lead to different kinds of creativity. Shy children, we know, are often quite observant and, and watch the world before joining in, which means they can actually understand social dynamics better than the children who sort of dive straight in, which that I found fascinating and that I learned from some of the psychologists I interviewed for the book. And speaking of one of those psychologists, a clinical psychologist, Dr. Emma Svanberg, she has a very good description of, of shyness, which I think it might be might surprise some people actually. It's very good. It goes that this shyness is like I prefer to stand back and observe before getting involved. Whereas social anxiety is people are frightening and a threat to me or my self-esteem. And then introversion, which is something different again, is I find energy from spending time alone or in small groups versus extroversion, which it, which is I find energy from being with others. So introverts enjoy being solitary and are generally more reserved, but it's a different personality trait to shyness, which is more related to openness versus cautiousness. So tell us a bit more about that. It's kind of fascinating, the, the distinctions. 
So yeah, I think it can it can help to know that you can be shy and extroverted. You can be shy and introverted. Um, but I'm a shy extrovert, so I love being around people. I love being in really busy places. I love festivals and busy markets and parties. But um, where an introvert would prefer to stay at home, would prefer to have one-on-one friendships, relationships, um, a shy person might, like me, might really want to participate in something bigger and really sociable, but we might... um, take a bit longer to get stuck in so we might sort of get to the party and hang back a bit and look at what's going on and um, when we feel comfortable join in so it's more a kind of a wariness uh, a cautiousness as you as you said well I'm going to bring in um, Suzanne here now because Suzanne works with us on the podcast and when we were talking about that we were going to be talking to you we started to have a conversation about shyness and Suzanne you confessed (laughs) <laughs> confess to being shy because like Annie says it is so often seen as a character flaw and it's something that people don't want to necessarily draw attention to themselves so w- tell us about your shyness Suzanne yeah so I was the shy kid in my house and I'm from a really large family I'm actually the youngest of 11 so I think that's played into a huge part of it because you know the youngest I observed a lot, like there was no point competing with all those voices. They were mostly boys as well. So you can imagine (laughs) the chaos in that house. But I just kind of sat back and and let the chaos unfold. And and I think it is a genetic trait, but I think it's part of your um, environment as well. So I just was the shy one. Um, amongst everyone. And this would kind of um, take form in, as you said, when people would call to the house, your parents, uh, friends. I have one vivid memory of uh, American relatives calling over with their huge camcorder. And for a shy child to have Americans call around, you know, these are very exotic people for them to be holding this huge contraption and which was going to record me seemed even more horrifying. Um, And I was hiding underneath the tables and clearly the the Americans didn't know my name because there were so many. So they were saying, this is Isabel. She's, you know, um, the second youngest. And they pointed at me and you can see it on the recording and they say, this is the shy one. And she, oh, wow. there she is crawling underneath the table. So it's um, it's always just been the way in my house. I have um, another memory as well. My sister, she was, as as I just mentioned, quite the loud one, the bubbly one. She would rush to the door to greet any strangers. Um, and my parents were trying to push me through uh, to, you know, come out of my shell a little bit. And they sent me to recorder lessons. Um, and the idea of going to recorder lessons, not because the music is so horrific, but the idea of walking into a room full of people was just too much for me to take at, um, I must have been about six or seven. And I couldn't go. I was just distraught. Like I would lie in bed, absolutely bawling my eyes out, crying, saying I can't walk into that room. And my mum sent my sister down with me and asked the teacher, could she come in with me and just sit beside me (laughs) while I participated in the class? And that wasn't one week. She did that for weeks just so I could go. Um, and then like it was the push I needed. And then eventually when you get your um, when you kind of get used to the environment, I said, is why you can stay at home. I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm halfway through. I can go in on my own and and learn myself. So, yeah, it's it's a, it was really, really a big um, personality trait when I was younger. As I've gotten older, it's kind of regressed a little bit, but it's still there in parts. You know, people might hear this and, and half know me and think, She's not that shy. I don't know what she's talking about, but it's something that's always there for sure. I thank you so much, Suzanne, because I know because you are a bit shy, it was a bit difficult for you to come on. So I do appreciate it. Um, Annie, (laughs) does that all sound very familiar? Because you've immersed yourself in shyness as well as being a shy person yourself. Have you any response to Suzanne's story? Do you know what? It's so interesting. And I, yeah, I find these, these, these stories and anecdotes are popping up all the time in my like DMs on social media and I love hearing them because they're so relatable but also I'm a mother myself I've got three young kids and my middle boy is shy 
and um, where you've described being de- being called the shy one because mm. they didn't know your name. And my son, so often, if we go out to the pub with a load of friends, the parents will buy a drink for all the kids and my son will be left out because he's quiet. They don't include him in the round of drinks. Mm. And I'm like, and so, and my feeling is that it's so important to make the shy child um, to be inclusive and to make them understand that they're just as important, even if they don't speak as much. And actually, I find my son fascinating because he's quiet and he goes and the way he plays is different. And every time he speaks, he says something really interesting. (laughs) Then I have my daughter who isn't at all shy and just chats nonstop. And that's great as well. But it's a very different, and you know, sometimes some peace is really nice around that. And so I think we need to look more at, at the balance between the, the, the shy children and the loud children and accept everyone, but never make a shy child feel that they're less. That is so important. I'm just thinking about my two bloody chatterboxes in my house. <laughs> and like some of this, now I love them, obviously to bits, but some of the stories they'd be telling, they are very rambling and you'd kind of go get to the point and like maybe yeah. you didn't need to say all of that. Whereas I know what you mean. My partner, on the other hand, their father would be very, very shy. But again, he doesn't say much, but the things he would say or the opinions that he might have, I'd suddenly be like, Jesus, that's so <laughs> insightful. That's so yeah. on the money. And like, but he wasn't have rambled on for ages. Like I would about everything <laughs> else, you know. Um, so I'm really interested in the book, particularly from the point of view of shyness as a superpower. And I think that's why, obviously, that what's, that's what motivated you. I mean, the subhead is how being quiet can lead to success. Um, you you say that it is, and as you mentioned earlier, there's a beauty to shyness and that there's that it can be an asset. So talk to me a little bit about that and, and why you you firmly believe that. Um, well, I was quite um, interested to learn because I run um, a couple of businesses. I was interested to look at the research on shy people as leaders and to discover that shy people often make much better leaders because we listen, we are better at teamwork because we don't feel we need to um, be kind of a leader in a in a very obvious visual sense, happy to participate more equally. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think I probably thought as a child, um, feeling really shy, there was no way I'd ever grow up to, be, to become an entrepreneur. Um, I probably thought that shy children can't ever um, present to people, do public speaking, um, employ people. And yet I've moved into this line of work, probably because my parents run their own businesses as well. And I've seen that not only can shy people lead and run businesses, but you bring something completely different to the table. I think listening is really important. And I know that Richard Branson is a shy leader and he's really good at listening. And he, he you know, people um, get up to speak in the workplace and he sits with a notebook and he lets them say their piece. And we know that, you know, you need the whole workforce to feel important and heard for a business to be successful. But Beyonce is also shy and created an alter ego, Sasha Fierce, so that she can get up on stage. So I started to look at all these really successful people. And I think perhaps being a shy child can make you more creative. You spend more time alone, perhaps sort of hanging back and observing. Maybe you have different ideas about the world than a child who sort of dives in and gets involved straight away, is sort of um, in the mix immediately. Um, I, I think probably I'm a writer because I was I was shy and and I found it easier to convey my feelings through words than through speaking. Um, so I think it's it's about looking at um, obvious, there are obvious advantages to being louder and more outgoing, which is that if you're in a work environment um, and you shout, then you will be heard. But I think shy people um, being quieter, being more strategic, perhaps um, observing social dynamics, um, maybe rather than just sort of blabbering on as we are talking about our children, um, we think a bit more before we speak um, so that we make less mistakes. You know, you're, everything you're saying is really reminding me of working with Suzanne, I have to say. So I'm going to bring you in, Suzanne, <laughs> because I find Suzanne a very calming presence in a lot of situations. And, and um, 
we know since we started working together, we've been involved in a lot of enterprises and there's been times when there's been technical hitches or issues where I have felt really <laughs> frazzled and wondering what to do. And Suzanne's reaction to it is so composed and calm. And I actually think, Suzanne, that's something to do with your shyness. I don't know why. Am I am I wrong to think that? I mean, do you agree or have you thought that shyness is a superpower or is it something you'd like to get rid of? Well, yeah, I'm kind of in between those uh, two ways, actually. Because in parts, like I can understand that you do listen a lot. Sometimes being quiet and, and listening don't always go hand in hand because you might be in your own head. You know, you might have forgotten to listen to the person um, because you're worried about where to come in next. I do think it does make you empathetic because you can instantly recognize when someone else is uncomfortable or you can see oh, this person is about to speak. I can sense, I almost feel the air of someone wanting to get a word in because I know how it feels. The calmness, I don't, I don't know. Would it be part of shyness? Who knows? It could be an element to it for sure. Well, the other thing about you though, and I think um, Annie touched on it, is the preparedness. And I think you said, Annie, you know, you don't want to be caught out making a mistake. I mean, you are very prepared, Suzanne, in, in all our meetings and that's deliberate. And do you think that's to do with not wanting to kind of be in an awkward situation and possibly your shyness to be exposed? Definitely, definitely. Because the one thing, and Annie, I'm sure you're, you've been the same growing up, is you don't want to be caught out. Yeah. To, I know you, you've obviously changed along your journey, but you don't want to be caught out um, to be labelled a shy person or you don't want to be in a meeting where you don't have anything to say. So you're always almost in a way overcompensating mm. because you don't want to be caught out. You don't want to not have the words to come to you. You want to have the words prepared way before in advance. So you know how you're going to react in a certain situation. I think it's the armour that a shy person wears mm. is preparedness, is, is knowing um, if I have all my ducks in a row, nothing can go wrong except maybe a bit of red cheeks. That's really interesting. And my sister talks that my sister's not shy and she yeah. never prepares for anything. If she was doing public speaking, she wouldn't prepare. She would just assume that she knows her stuff. And for me, that mm. is like, oh my God, there's just no way I would stand up on stage without having written detailed notes, rehearsed to my phone, to my people. And... um um, but my sister does say that she always thinks she could have done a better job because she didn't prepare. <laughs> and so, you know, there's an advantage. I love how you describe it as an armour, um, yeah. you know, the, the preparedness. Yeah, it's definitely a way to get you through. And then the rest of it, the nerves and the and the blushing, you just have to deal with. Mm. But uh, Suzanne, you got into radio then. So how did you cope with the shyness of that? Because that's quite a, you know, I mean, you might say an extrovert kind of role, even though you're behind the scenes as a producer. Yeah, so I got into radio um, and I think it's because behind every shy person is a person who desperately doesn't want to be shy, who desperately is. Um, and I know there is the difference between extrovert and shyness, but I do think there's that person that would love to walk into a room and not be a bit worried about are they going to see anyone they know. So I think those professions draw shy people into them because they're almost challenging themselves. And I totally felt when I worked in radio, um, I wasn't a presenter because I couldn't overcome that shyness element to it. But look at you now, Suzanne. I know. Won't <laughs> 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 shut up. Um, but I did find um, with loads of radio presenters that I met in the years that I worked there, so many of them are shy. And going into the radio studio, turning on the mic, the red light going on, it's their moment to bring out that person that they always want to be. And mm. that's in there that they know is there. Um, but they can't bring into their full life because they're probably thinking about it too much or they're conscious. So it's their chance to, you know, um, shake off all those shackles and just be that person that they could be if shyness wasn't, you know, a stamp on their head, so to say. So I do find that... Um, because there is that element to all of us that would love to not have it as part of our, um, I guess, makeup. Mm. Um, that's what draws people to to go, OK, I will go into radio, even if it scares absolute bejesus out of me. And 
Annie, you write a lot about that in the book. I was fascinated by some of the kind of insights into celebrities and people. There was one particular interview. I found this a lot as well, interviewing very famous people where they often will tell you that they were very, very shy as a child. And almost that's how they ended up. Tell us a few of those stories, because Nicole Kidman would be one. And you mentioned a few others. Yeah, in fact, and I spoke to a celebrity interviewer who said it's so commonplace for a, for an actor or a performer to say that they were a shy child, so they were sent to performing arts school and then they got to where they are now. They, he doesn't even include it in the interviews anymore. Yeah, Nicole Kidman um, was and is shy and, and still kind of um, says she struggles on set sometimes. Um, Michelle Dockery, the actress, Dockery, yeah. Yeah, said um, that she finds the, the kind of PR side of her acting job, which is now like an intrinsic part of it, difficult because she can perform um, as someone else but when she's herself and has to promote the work she's doing um, she finds that side harder but I think um, yeah and there are so many Jim Carrey, Johnny Depp, so many Elton John, um, so many people who are so successful in the kind of creative world and are or were shy Um, But I definitely think there's something in what Suzanne said about this um, determination. So if you were a shy child and you felt like, you know, I want to be on the stage, I want to be doing this, it can make you so determined to prove that your shyness isn't going to hold you back that actually you get further ahead. Yeah, that's interesting. You also mentioned Andrew Scott. Our, he's an Irish actor. And, yes. And, and the thing of, um, and I suppose both of you probably have, maybe this happened. I know your parents, Annie, were very kind of okay with your shyness, whereas probably Suzanne's parents were a little more worried about her, perhaps. Um, but he was pushed into drama classes as a way to overcome his shyness and ended up loving it. So it's mm. interesting that that seems to happen a lot, with particularly with actors. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Um, And I think it goes to show that because your child is shy, it doesn't mean they will never amount to anything. There's, you know, he obviously had an inner performer already. Not everyone does. But, you know, the people who have been shy and have gone on to become really successful actors clearly have a a flair for it. (laughs) I love that you mentioned Andrew Scott because he was actually my drama teacher. Oh, really? (laughs) This is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he was. I had him for oh maybe about a year or so when and, and drama was something I was pushed into. Like I found drama really tough. <laughs> um but he was an amazing teacher. He was really, really nice. I, I loved him. So Andrew, if you're listening. That's so funny though. You didn't know you were talking to you that your drama teacher was a former fellow shy person. You would have never guessed that about I him probably. I would never have guessed. Mm. No, not not in a million years, yeah. So there you go. I think at some point we need to get Andrew and Suzanne on the podcast. That would be a good, like reunited, two shy people who kind of found their lane. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I used to love him when I used to see him outside of drama class. Like I loved him so much and I would just come out of my shy shell. I used to scream at him across the road and be like, Andrew, and waving to him. (laughs) Suzanne, did you fancy him though? I fancied him so much. Yeah, I did. I did. My sister used to give me terrible slaggings as well. But anyway. I know. And then it was devastating when he found out he was gay. (laughs) A bit like the George Michael for me back in the day. And we've gone a bit off the subject here, Annie, as sometimes happens on this podcast. But um, back to kind of the feedback you've had to the book. Like, why have, do you feel like that it's really resonated with people? Because I re- I'm reading your book and thinking, I thinking that I wasn't, I don't think of myself as shy, but I do feel like there's there's grades of it. There's a spectrum of shyness. I mean, I am somebody, I do prefer smaller groups. I'm quite extrovert in some ways. But if I walk into a room, I'll often find myself on the fringes, sussing out what's going on first before I decide where I'm going to actually put my social capital or whatever, that I'm not just going to go in there and feel completely comfortable with everybody. So is it something that's on a bit of a a spectrum, do you think? Yeah, very much. Um, And as um, Suzanne touched on earlier, um, it's it's part, usually part genetic, part environment, but it can also be triggered by something circumstantial. It could be a trauma that then uh, makes a child or an adult um, feel they find it harder to speak out. Um, But also it might be that there are certain environments that we feel shy in, as you've just described. So, yeah, it's very much a spectrum. And at one end, there's feeling um, a little bit um, cautious when we go into a a wedding, a party, a new workplace. And then at the opposite end, there's sort of acute social anxiety. 
which is where we find it hard to go out at all or to speak to anyone to pick up the phone. Um, and when it's up at that end, um, something like CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy, can be really useful um, to help you to kind of work through your thought processes and your behaviours and to enable you to do the, the kind of the normal, live a normal life and not feel like it's really holding you back from, um, from working, from socialising, from enjoying life. And in some ways, your book's quite timely because hasn't COVID made us all a little bit shy? I mean, after a year without socialising, lots of people are finding it hard to get back out there and to know how to be with people. So are mm. you hearing anything about that? Or have you any thoughts on that? I'm hearing lots about it. And I've written a few articles with tips as well, because lots of adults are feeling shy, wary about reintegrating, not sure if they want to reintegrate not sure if they want to go back into the workplace because they're fed up with having to make all the small talk. <laughs> um, but all I noticed, um, and I did write about this in the book with my children, at first it was actually quite shocking because uh, after the first lockdown, no, during the first lockdown when we were allowed our daily walk, um, my children and their friends would bump into each other and they wouldn't speak at all. And they developed acute shyness because of the pandemic and the lockdown and the sudden change in, in going from seeing loads of kids every day to seeing no one except their siblings, if they're, you know, if they're lucky enough to have them. Um, so, yeah, for adults and children, um, shyness that was there before may have resurfaced. Um, some people have developed a shyness. Um, so there's definitely a big conversation around that and, and how we sort of work with it or accept Suzanne, it. Suzanne, have you... <laughs> Found that at all, um, that your shyness is sort of heightened and, uh, you know, coming back out into the world now? Yeah, well, I definitely feel like most of us, we've built this warm cocoon around us. The only people you're chatting to are on Zoom and, and the only people you talk to in real life are in the park and you're talking, you know, d dog small talk. <laughs> like That doesn't get me very far. You know, seeing my friends that I've had for years, seeing them in real life again does bring up a little bit of anxiety you know that shyness it might even be weird for a second or two and then it's completely back to normal um but I think I think even the non-shy amongst us are going to have to deal with those feelings once we're all back seeing each other again I wonder if it can balance out because I went and met some really old friends for a dinner out and I realized it's the first time I'd done that in you know over a year and we were sat and I suddenly went completely quiet and I had nothing to say. And I sat there and I, having done all this research around shyness, I was kind of OK with it. I was aware of it, but I was OK with it. And I was thinking, I've got nothing to contribute, but I'm quite happy to just sit here. And I feel that my friend, I have one friend who loves talking and never stops talking. And I just kind of, it created space for her to enjoy <laughs> talking perhaps even more than she usually would because she was nervous. And then, you know, and so I think it can balance out. And if we go in with mm. that attitude. I think so. And I think your friends, your friends know you more than we probably give them credit for. They mm. know that you're like that or that I'm like that. And it's almost expected. And yes, it does give the room for the ones who want to speak a mile a minute and get all their news out straight away it gives us yeah. the breathing space so yeah I think there definitely is I totally agree with that uh, so I'm going to put this to both of you before we go and first to you Annie about advice you'd have for shy people or parents of shy people who might be listening to the podcast and kind of thinking about it I mean I do love that you say it's a superpower but I suppose also as Suzanne has mentioned it's something that is challenging and I think a lot of shy people have to mask a lot so that takes a lot of energy like Suzanne described there being ultra prepared, overcompensating, terrified of being caught out of the shyness. Is there something to be said for allowing it to be publicly acknowledged that you're shy? I mean, yeah. Sheryl Sandberg talks in Lean In about bringing your whole self to work. You know, it's all right for Sheryl Sandberg, though. She's got, got everything she wants. But, um, you know, she talks about crying in the workplace and stuff like that. Is it time to kind of reclaim shyness as a as a thing and not to and take it out of the, the dark, shadowy, shameful corners that it seems to be in now? Yeah, definitely. That's yeah. When you ask for tips, that's what first sprang to mind. Um, to be open about our shyness. So if you have a child who's shy, rather than thinking we can't talk about it because then they're going to realise they're shy. They know they're shy. They know they don't speak as much as other people. People make comments, neighbours, friends, teachers. And if we can speak about it with them and say, you know, do you sometimes feel shy? How is that for you? And have an open conversation that isn't criticising them, that isn't kind of piling on any shame. It's totally accepting 
then they begin to be accepting of themselves and to not feel they have to change or adapt to, to suit other people or other environments. All the psychologists I spoke to said in terms of children, the school need to accommodate a shy child. A shy child doesn't need to fit in to a um, into the school place. That does, we, we shouldn't be telling children that you have to be loud if you're going to kind of get on okay in school. They should be allowed to be quiet. I think in the workplace or for adults, um, we need a similar approach. So I definitely think it would be great if we could all be really open in the same way that we'll now sort of talk openly about being introverted and preferring time at home. That's not a shameful thing. I think the book Quiet by Susan Cain helped to open that conversation and, um, and she did amazing work. And I think we could do the same thing for shyness if we talk openly. But if we also say... Um, if there is someone who's shy in the workplace and maybe doesn't feel confident to speak on the spot in a work meeting, can they um, contribute after the meeting via email or can they hand in some notes before the meeting that can be included? But we shouldn't say everyone has to sit in the room and shout if they want to contribute. It should. It needs to be a more even um, playing field and that's for the employers to um, create. And before I come to Suzanne, Annie, it's interesting because we haven't spoken about it as a gender issue yet, but I'm just minded listening to you there about um, sort of a a role I was in in my work a couple of years ago, where very often I had daily meetings where I was often the only woman in the room. And I I felt quite and I would be, you know, you can sell I'm not most retiring person, but I found myself very intimidated by that and found it really difficult to um, and like Suzanne, almost preparing what I was going to say and almost having it written down in that particular um, scenario, because I knew that I was going to struggle to get my words out. Now, it became easier as I went on in in the role but I definitely think there was something about being surrounded by a room of very confident very articulate um men who knew what they were at and could off the cuff say all the things they wanted to say that that kind of intimidated me even more do you have you found that while you were doing your research that there was a gender side to this I think what you've just described is probably really common I think any kind of difference or when you feel you're in the minority um, it's harder to then say your piece. So I would say that across the board um, in terms of race as well as gender, um, possibly age. Um, I didn't do any kind of deep research into that. And when I looked at the studies, there's a huge study on shyness and it's not hugely different between women and men in general. Um, but we know that certain, I think um, men are the least shy group if they're in a relationship but women aren't far behind if there are sort of certain conditions that make us less shy, like being in a relationship, being in work, um, particular jobs, either make us less shy or we go for them because we are less shy, like working in sales. Though People who work in sales are the least shy people, apparently. Which you did yourself, it has to be said. And also, I think you're very open about um, how in your 20s you went from kind of boyfriend to boyfriend and having a partner helped you in the world with your shyness and you were, you're very aware of that now, not, not so much at the time, perhaps. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think as a child, I always had a best friend, so I attached myself to someone always louder than me and who would always sort of lead the way and design the games and I would just sort of hang back and do what she said. And then I had boyfriends who wouldn't tell me what to do, but they were there as like a comfort. It it felt comfortable to arrive with someone, to be attached to someone. Um, So I've never been single for long. And now that I'm (laughs) married, I don't know in this. uh, He suddenly leaves me. I don't know that I will be. (laughs) That's for life now. (laughs) Let's hope so. Fingers crossed. Um, Suzanne, finally, does any of that resonate with you in terms of um, how you've moved through the world? Yeah, I think that... One that I find interesting is um, like some of my most vivid memories as a child are of the moments where I've been really scared or um, out of my depth in comfort zone. So, you know, when the Americans <laughs> called over or being forced to go up on stage and and recite a poem, um, even though my legs were shaking so much, you'd think I'd gone up there to do an Irish dance. <laughs> like. There's those moments where I've been um, pushed really hard that I think if I wasn't pushed to do those things, um, even though they were difficult, would I still be, you know, maybe 10 steps back in the journey? Would I still, would I have been able to do anything or accept any challenge? Um, but even though I'm, I'm not sure if going about it that way was the right way to go. 
if you know. So it, it, what's the balance there between, you know, I have a shy nephew at the moment and um, and he he will uh, openly say, oh, um, if he's going to meet someone, he might say, what happens if I feel shy when I arrive um, or when they arrive and I, I won't know what to say? Um, and my sister's brilliant. She'll say, well, say whatever you like or, you know, however you're feeling at that moment, that's fine. Um, you know, there's, there'll be lots to talk about or there, you know, you won't have to say anything. Do do you, as they say. But so I do wonder there, where do you strike the balance um, in pushing a, a shy child? Because that's something that I think if I hadn't been thrown in the deep end, uh, where would I be now? So I am grateful for it, but I am still a bit scarred as well. That's an interesting thing on comfort zones. But then it sounded like your mum encouraged you, but understood you were finding it difficult, like with the recorder classes mm. and sent your sister along. So there was a an understanding that you might need some extra support, but she could also see that you wanted to do it. And eventually you were going on your own. So mm. it's the right kind of encouragement rather than forcing, maybe encouraging. Yeah, she saw a bit of me in her, I guess, as a, as a child. She's very similar. So I think she she knew what um, what extra comforts I needed to be able to go out and, and jump into it. But um, I'm sure she would have loved to have that when she was younger as well. Mm. Well, I'm just going to finish by reading out a bit of praise for your book, uh, Annie, because, you know, people have really appreciated it. Um, Harriet Minter, who's the author of Working From Home, which a lot of us are obviously doing at the moment, she says how reassuring it is to know that success and happiness are not conditional on being the loudest or most confident one out there. And that, in fact, our shyness is a superpower just waiting to be unleashed. And Laura Watley, who's the author of Money, A User's Guide, says in a noisy, opinionated world where putting yourself out there is seemingly the only way to succeed, Annie offers a reassuring celebration of shyness and the benefits it can bring us alongside a practical guide to how to overcome the ways in which it can hold us back. So I think you do that really well in the book. And um, Suzanne, I'm sure you've got loads of tips from it uh, that you can take on. But (laughs) I think you're both fine examples of how shyness doesn't have to hold anyone back and how it can create more empathy and creativity and, like you say, leadership skills. Because now what you do, Annie, is you help women, don't you, uh, take their ideas into online businesses and become entrepreneurs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm a coach and um, I run online courses. So I support women wanting to work online, which has been (laughs) quite, yeah, I've been quite busy this past year with it. I'd say you have. (laughs) Well, uh, it's been wonderful talking to you. I hope all the shy people listening to the podcast have got something out of that and also the non-shy people and the closeted shy people. That's what I'd call myself. I'm sort uh. of in the closet with my shyness, <laughs> but I'm I'm going to put myself out there now. And Suzanne, thank you very much for overcoming your shyness to get in front of the microphone Ooh. instead of behind it. How do you feel? I know, I'm just about okay now. <laughs> Brilliant. All right, Annie and Suzanne, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That was Annie Ridout and our own Suzanne Brennan there. And the book is called Shy, How Being Quiet Can Lead to Success. Next, My Expert Midwife is a brand founded by British midwife Leslie Gilchrist, who you might recognise from the Channel 4 show One Born Every Minute. Products include Spritz for Bits, Peri Prep and Fantastic Skin, all aimed at expectant and new mothers to help them prepare for and heal after birth. In this interview, she talks to our co-producer, Jennifer Ryan, about why it's vital that women are given the time and space to recover after giving birth, how best to support new mothers and the impact of the pandemic on childbirth. Leslie began by explaining how my expert midwife came about. Yeah, so my background was um, as a midwife from 2003, both in the NHS and then laterally my career working as an independent midwife. So caseloading clients all the way through pregnancy, supporting them, caring for them in birth and then postnatally as well. And I think it became really, really obvious in that time when I was offering all that postnatal care that the products that were available of which there were hardly any, to be fair, weren't really thought through properly from start to finish. So, you know, you think about nipple balm, it's in, it, they're in tubes, you need two hands to get it out, it's quite thick, doesn't, it's, it's gluey and tacky to apply, it's not practical. So um, 
I used to make up my own nipple balm using a lanolin base, mixing it with coconut oil and um, sweet almond oil. And it thinned it out, still offered that brilliant protection. Um, It had the uh, coconut oil in it as well, which was an antifungal. And my clients loved it. And then, of course, you know, they would uh, give birth. And, you know, when people are paying for care, they won't accept you saying, well, just use water because that's all there is. There isn't anything else in the market. They, They won't accept that. So I had to then look into um, alternatives and they had to be evidence-based alternatives. You know, it couldn't be sort of new age things. So um, my, and I had a master's degree in uh, research, clinical research. So I knew my way around databases and um, clinical analysis and things. And there was so much evidence to support the use of essential oils in wound healing, in pain relief, in preventing infection for uh, mood balance, so many things. And I did a course in aromatherapy and would make tinctures for uh, women's perineums, um, caesarean sections to help take down bruising, uh, pain relief, help with healing, you know, and they would either add it to the bath or pop it onto a pad. So Spritz for Bits came about because it needed to be a better delivery system anyway. You know, not everyone wants to have a bath and not everyone's got time to soak pads. So, you know, that's where they all came from. It was all our products are designed from the point of necessity. And Leslie, it's, it comes down to as well, you know, this whole idea of self-care. And we're going to talk about that in a minute now because of the research from my expert midwife. And it's into the, the aftercare that women do or more accurately don't do after giving birth. And one of the findings is that more than half of Irish women don't have a birth plan. And I would say that of those who actually do, it's focused on the actual birth and that's it. No, that's it. They focus so much on the birth. Everything's geared towards the birth, learning about the birth. You have a midwife with you for the majority of that time. You may have a midwife and a doctor. You know, you could almost say, you don't, re- you know, your body, if you trust your body, it, it does whatever it needs to do. You've got a midwife and a doctor there to answer any questions and care for you. As soon as you give birth, that care, that one-to-one care is gone. And when you leave hospital, it's absolutely minimal. And you have this new baby that you know, if it's your first, hardly anything about how to care. You know, you're under the impression that your instincts kick in. They don't. Instincts are born out of watching how other people in villages would do this from huge, huge families, you know, 15 children, that sort of thing. We don't have that anymore in our society. We're treating women as if they should just know and when they don't know, when those instincts don't kick in, they start to question their ability as mothers. And that, you know, and that's that first very big problem that they have. You know, when you get home and you're trying to get a feeding routine, what are they crying for? You know, what about the visitors? This constant stream of people that visit. And it's all really, really detrimental. And in pregnancy, if you can plan for that, so if we're saying to women, right, this is that first week you're exhausted, you're absolutely exhausted and your body's trying to heal and it can't do both. And it certainly can't do it if you're depriving yourself of food and uh, fluids as well. Antenatally, you almost want to make that plan for what's the worst case scenario? Right, well, we're going to need someone to do laundry, feed us and actually help look after us. And that's when you have that inner circle. So you'd contact this inner circle, your sister, your really close friends, family and say, right, that first week, can we just collectively get you to do laundry drop off, ironing, run round with the vacuum, cook meals. We need three meals a day for that first week. And also someone to corral and manage that outer circle of people that, you know, want to come and see baby and to a certain extent want to come and see you. But actually... It's disruptive. It stops women wanting to feel comfortable feeding in front of them. It disrupts their sleeping because they're reluctant to say, well, thanks for coming over, but I need to go for a sleep now or baby needs a feed. So that inner circle can then be given that responsibility of making sure that the outer circle know when it will be appropriate to visit, which is usually after the third week. And there's lots of great tips that we've got on our website about 
how to manage those visitors, how to manage that outer circle so that they understand that, you know, they will get to see baby, but on their terms, on their mother's and the father's terms, not on their terms. And that's what we don't do at the moment. And it's very difficult as well to ask for help. When you're in that situation, that first week to say, this is not going well. I don't know what's wrong with my baby. They just feed constantly. They're not settled and I'm exhausted and I'm in pain. It's at that point that women will, you know, you you then have to say to them, you know, you need help. You know, that, that feeling of failure comes in. Whereas it's much easier to have all that preparation and planning done antenatally and then say, do you know what? Actually, we're fine. We do enough food in the freezer. We don't mind living in a tip. We'll get onto it next week. So you don't, you know, you don't need to come over. I know it forms part of the research as well is the importance of women making some time for themselves. And I know that in the weeks after giving birth, even the months after giving birth, it's very difficult to do that. And I also think there's there's a societal bias towards the perceived needs of the baby taking precedence over everything. As, As a pregnant woman, you constantly hear that refrain, sure, all that matters is a healthy baby in the end. And I know you're, you're, this is what you're, you're getting at here. It's not just educating mothers on self-care after birth. It's actually changing how we deal with it as a society. Well, that's it. And I think, you know, we um, developed our soap for bits, which is Epsom salts and um, essential oils, because we wanted women to take that 30 minutes a day for themselves to help them heal physically to help, you know, get rid of the toxins and all that swelling, but ultimately to give them that guilt-free time in the bath, 30 minutes. And, you know, when we were discussing that, the midwives, so there's a group of five midwives in in My Expert Midwife, and we'll talk about different things. And, and, you know, we were in this discussion about, right, how are we going to encourage women to take time for themselves? Because the guilt's tremendous. They'll just not do it. And, you know, you you sort of say to yourself, how as a society have we got to the point that women go through that labour... And it's, you know, it's quite an assault, a physical assault on their body. And they need to recover and heal from that. And they've lost blood and they're exhausted. So this isn't just a normal healing process. When did we as a society think it's acceptable to give women three, two, three days to do that? When if you'd had major abdominal surgery in general, you know, six weeks, you'd be, you know, people would be running after you for six weeks, probably longer. As a society, we do need to take a long, hard look at the expectations that we place on women, because when we do that, we don't allow them to be able to say, hold on, you know, as much as we are very strong, you know, as a, as a species, as a female of the species, very strong, do amazing things. We are still human and we do need time to heal. Um, but, but we find it so difficult to do that at the expense of the baby. And I think uh, the pandemic, we can't ignore that, you know, because a lot of what we've spoken about here, we're talking about um, the support from family, extended family, um, friends, relatives, and how important that is when you have a new baby. The pandemic has torn that away from so many women who've had babies in the last year. What are your views on that? How big of an impact has has the pandemic had, do you think, on, on, on people who've just had children in the past year the biggest feedback from women is that that lack of support that that lack of physical and emotional support from their partner during appointments um and it's not so much the antenatal appointments because most partners didn't go to them it was the scans and these scans women are having scans because we want to exclude problems so we're not doing we're, we're not giving scans so they can have an enjoyable let's see baby we're doing them because we're expecting to find problems and we're looking for problems so it's at those times that they really really need the partner because some of them are getting devastating news and there's no one there with them and that was the biggest thing for women um going into labor and having to go onto the assessment unit themselves being told, well, if you're so many centimetres, then you can go to labour ward and your partner can be with you. But what's actually happening there is we're saying to women, you have to have a vaginal examination. And if you don't have one, then we can't send you to labour ward. Therefore, your partner can't be with you. And, and as a midwife, it, it chills me that we're using that almost coercively now. Support as well at home, that inner circle that's so vital. You can get around it by having doorstep drop-off. It's just not the same as having your mum or your sister. 
just downstairs with your baby while you can sleep and your partner can sleep. But what we did notice, that silver lining was babies that were breastfed were back up to birth weight by day five, when normally that was day 10, day 14. And we knew as, as midwives and lactation consultants that that lack of sort of speed at which they would gain weight was probably due to disruptive feeding because there's lots of visitors, therefore they can't get the supply up uh, they can't regulate that supply because they're almost missing feeds. Uh, babies become unsettled. They don't. They have latch problems. Whereas when COVID hit and there weren't visitors, you didn't have this parade of visitors in that first week. Women were actually able to just lie about the house in whatever clothes they wanted to or not want to wear and uh, feed their baby. Just do, and not have to worry about people turning up or having to have the house tidy because visitors might come. You know, as a midwife, I used to always worry if I had a postnatal visit to do in that first week and the house was tidy because I think you're not prioritising your time. No one cares if your house is a mess. But, you know, that half an hour that it's taken you to do that, you could have actually just spent on the sofa lounging or having a bath, but you're tidying. And and that's that's that was the benefit of COVID. And we'll have a lot of data now. And those data will be able to form that sort of education that we can give to women nowadays where we can say look during COVID what we learned and it'll be retrospective but what the data that we can show is that visitors will probably impact negatively on your breastfeeding so choose them wisely and we've never had those data before I think that really is a silver lining but the women that have been through this period, it's, it's going to be like the Blitz, you know, or World War Two, where, you know, we had those women that did extraordinary things that were never expected of them because it was the war, you know, and they lived through that and they were the warriors of that era. We will look back on COVID and we will see that same warrior spirit in those pregnant women and those women that gave birth and those women that brought up their babies during that time, you know, because they did that courageously in a time where everything else was just in flux and they still had to get on and do that job. And that's, I think, what they need to remember. Mm. And a, a, a good thing to remember as well is um, women who go through this alone or women who aren't as, you know, well off or women who have to go navigate the health system and the maternity system when English is not their first language and the sort of difficulties they encounter and how even much more difficult having a baby during the pandemic would have been for those people as well. Yes, and I think... You know, we put so many systems in place for support, don't we? But it's for the masses and the, and the women that really need that additional support. Um, it's not really structured for them. And I think, you know, we talk about all this. Well, you need all this support um, postnatally. And, you know, there's some women that will have, there'll be a single parent. They may have three other children and no family close by. And there are, there are agencies that can help them, but they're just not well signposted. So, you know, women need support and they need it in these early days. You know, that not to five is the most important time in, the, you know, in that child's life for everything and if we can get that support in then to support that mother then we make a huge difference towards the end of their life for the whole of society because they come become well they're more likely to become a contributor to society but I think sometimes we're a bit short-termist when it, certainly when it comes comes to public and social policy, we can be very short-termist. One final question for you, Leslie. Where can you direct people who might be looking for some good resources uh, to find out a bit more about aftercare? Well, your health visitor, your public health nurse, they will be able to tell you what's available locally in your area. Um, so there will be breastfeeding support, um, weaning support, developmental support for your baby but it all is it's very patchy and and it, it differs greatly by location so certainly first port of call your midwife while you're still under their care your public health nurse you've also got on our website we've got loads and loads of resources and blogs so there's a lot of written content video content that help birth partners understand what their role can be uh, in the postnatal recovery period. Really some great tips on how to write a birth plan, what you need 
planning for your recovery. And again, videos just helping you sort of understand what that journey's like and how to prepare for it. Leslie, thank you so much for speaking to the Women's Podcast today. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. That was Leslie Gilchrist there with Jennifer Ryan and thanks earlier to Suzanne Brennan and Annie Ridout. And that's all we have time for. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Contact us on social, on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter using at IT Women's Podcast and also we're on email too. And we love hearing from you. So do email us the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, mind yourselves and thanks very much for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.